Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast. I'm Francis Scott here with my co-host Nico House and Aaron Good. Hey, guys. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? Hi, Francis. Great to be here. Good to see you guys. Our show title today, The War on the Freedom to Choose. By that, we mean the freedom to make your own health care decisions, of course, together with your family and your doctors. Now, some people, maybe some of the younger people, may not know this, but doctors are supposed to be able to speak freely with their patients about available treatments for whatever is ailing the patient. But some, perhaps many doctors, might feel now that they cannot do that without fear of professional reprisal. And that raises the question, how free are we? Now, our guest today is Dr. Pierre Corey. He's a former associate professor and chief of critical care service at the University of Wisconsin. At the beginning of COVID-19, he was enjoying success there as a pulmonary and critical care medicine specialist. Now, in addition to having built a career that many would envy, Dr. Corey has proven himself to be a warrior for health freedom and the heart and soul of what it means to be a doctor. Now, he's testified in hearings held in the Senate and has been interviewed hundreds, if not thousands of times by now. Let's listen. So, Dr. Corey, first of all, we really appreciate you being here today. Uh, you have quite the story that some of our listeners may not really be familiar with because, of course, and unsurprisingly, you were widely censored. Walk us through how you ended up in the spotlight in the early months of COVID. And when you do that, can you describe what it was like in those early hours and days of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh it's a crazy time that you're going back to, but for all of us, right? Um, but, you know, for me, you know, when COVID was coming, because, you know, COVID became like my 24-7 reality before it even hit the U.S. I mean, we were watching, you know, all the, the you know, the television footage from Lombardy and China and all that. And um, we knew it was coming. And I was in a position of leadership, right? I was uh, the director of the main medical surgical ICU at the University of Wisconsin, uh, which is a, you know, one of the biggest academic medical centers in the country. Um, and I was in charge of 17 ICU specialists. And so for the first weeks, you know, when New York was getting hit, we didn't have a case in Wisconsin. So we had all the time in the world that New York didn't have, Seattle didn't have to prepare for what we knew was going to be an onslaught of patients. You know, we were building specific ICUs. We we're doing going through processes, you know, around uh, personal protective equipment, um, did a lot of stuff on protocols, um, and we put together our own treatment protocol for UW. And a lot of the academic, academic medical centers did that. Um, but um, 
I will say that the when the I would say it's early April, late March, early April when the first patients started rolling into the hospital and then into the ICU at, at UW. And you know, I would say from the get-go, you know, me and Paul Marrick, we were trying to figure out how to treat this thing. And coming up with a protocol, I came up with a really aggressive multi-combination protocol for myself. Um, you know, in case I were to get ill, my, my ex-wife is actually a uh, pulmonary critical care physician as well. So she knew <laughs> how I want, want to be treated if I went down and I knew how I would treat her. And anyway, we just started researching, you know, it was just me and Paul and a couple other colleagues just every day our inboxes were filling with papers, stuff that was coming off of preprint servers. And so it was like this really frantic kind of emergency crisis time. And, and I mean, I was literally at my desk, if not at work, I was at my desk, like, you know, 15, 20 hours a day. And I just remember just wow. a flurry of discussions. Me and Paul were debating things, learning new things. Um, I was on the phone every day with one of my former colleagues in New York City, because I, I was trained in New York and I ran an ICU in New York for almost 10 years. And I knew every ICU director in New York. Um, and so my favorite ones, my closest ones, I was on the phone with them, asking them what they were seeing, what they were doing, what they were trying. And at that time, I mean, it was a lot, lot freer. <laughs> you know, you guys talked about in the intro, you know, being able to treat and do what you want. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you guys, in my career, I've never, ever been told I can or can't do something. You know, traditionally in medicine, that responsibility and that autonomy is fully granted to the physician. And you're also fully granted the responsibility of failing and hurting someone. And it's called malpractice, right? And that I thought used to be the kind of guardrails that that governed uh, the practice of medicine, which is that um, you were free to do whatever you wanted in, in the best interest of the patient. But if you were to harm them uh, by departing from the standard of care, that you 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 were responsible. And I, and I will say that most physicians are very gun shy, very conservative for that reason, because they're afraid of, of standing out, doing something different and it not working out. I've been blessed to never have that kind of perspective. And so, and, and I think with COVID, we, we were even more open. This is early COVID. And so, mm -hmm. you know, what happened then also is um, a couple of people, two other doctors, fairly prominent doctors, one from the West Coast, one from the East Coast, they knew of Paul's work. Paul, you know, my partner who co-founded the FLCCC with me, you know, he's the most published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty, critical care medicine. I mean, he's a giant in medicine. And he was known for his protocols for sepsis. And two people reached out to him. And they basically said, listen, get a group of colleagues together. You know, we'll get you guys a website, give yourselves a name and provide guidance. Because if you guys remember there was no guidance. It was stay home until your lips turn blue, right? It, which was absurd. <laughs> One of Paul's first actions is he wrote letters to like every major healthcare uh, agency leader, politician that he could. And there was a famous letter he wrote to Cuomo in the early days um, where he basically said, you know, there is no disease that you cannot treat. There's always something you can mm. treat someone with. And he put down what he proposed. It was all like safe stuff like nutraceuticals and vitamins. Um and anyway, so we, we put together a protocol, you know, and, you know, I, the early FLCCC, I, I would call it five guys in a website. You know, like that's all we were, but you know, we had good graphics. We were really thinking clearly on what to put on there. 
And we were actively tracking all therapeutics. Like, because you'd heard all these rumors like this was working, that was working. And, and keep in mind, ivermectin was never on our protocol, not until October of 2020. So our first pr protocol was a, a hospital protocol. And um, Paul had like a list of medicines that he was tracking data on. And ivermectin was on there from early on, but it had a question mark. We'd never put it into a protocol until the data started just, you know, pouring out in, in the fall. Um, and anyway, so that's how kind of um, I got triggered. I mean, here, here I am, you know, a pulmonary and critical care physician at the peak of my career, and suddenly the world is enveloped in a pulmonary and critical care disease. And I don't want to sound egotistical, but, you know, I was like, game on. You know, this this is the time. This, this is this the show. This is the show. Like, all right, show time. <laughs> what's the purpose of all the years of training, all the sweat, all the nights I've spent in ICU trying to figure out how to treat patients with acute respiratory failure? And, and here I was with a new form of it. And it looked like there was going to be a lot of those folks. And there were. And I drowned in ICUs caring for them for, you know, almost two years. Um, but anyway, that's yeah. how the journey started. Um I resigned pretty quickly from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, so I lost three jobs. The first one I resigned. Um, and the reason why I resigned was I had been on the therapeutics committee and I had managed to provide enough evidence to support the use of intravenous vitamin C in the hospital or ICU phase of the disease. And so it was literally on the official UW protocol. And I write about this in my book. The dean of the medical school, the dean who is probably one of the most powerful people in an academic medical center, got wind that IV vitamin C was on our treatment protocol and basically put pressure on the chair of medicine to get it off. And so I had to watch essentially academic misconduct. I saw the chair of medicine convene the therapeutics committee. I listened, I, I listened into that committee meeting. Everyone was hedging and hawing, and now they're suddenly questioning the data of whether they should use it, and they all vote to get rid of IV vitamin C. And also, I had put on steroids there as a strong consideration, and they basically weakened their recommendation for steroids. And so, so, so basically, so basically, this is like the start of. Uh, like a downhill, like every, everything kind of rolling downhill of every time you suggested something that you knew would potentially have a positive impact, there were, there were steamrolling you effectively. There's no question. And but was I that was confusing? Say, say that again? Was that confusing? Were you like, wait, well, that's, were you so still at that point? point? Yeah. So it, at that point, it wasn't confusing. It was a bit unsurprising to me because, but here's the difference I want to make. The actions that they took and what I was so angry at then I don't believe those were corrupt actions. I don't believe they were fraudulent. That is just where medicine is now. And I think that is a fraudulent progression. But, you know, we are governed by something called evidence-based medicine, where we really try to put forth guidance and treatments and protocols based on clinical trials evidence as much as possible. The problem with evidence-based medicine, it's, it's been distorted and perverted to the point now where doctors do nothing until some large shiny trial tells them what to do. And so what I saw those actions are is they would, didn't want us to treat unless we had trials evidence and, and not use our clinical experience and our professional judgment of risk benefits and alternatives. And so they were literally pushing back. The other thing that was happening is I was starting to suggest on my daily briefings with the intensivists, like consider anticoagulation, consider steroids earlier. And then my superiors were starting to show up at those meetings and they were talking over me. And I realized, so a few things. I realized that 
I had to get away from that institution. I, they were heading someplace really bad. They were literally advocating against treatment. They committed scientific misconduct by politically maneuvering and manipulating and influencing the therapeutics committee, which should have been independent, academic, and objective in our recommendations. And now they're putting political pressures. And so I, I said, you know what, I'm done. And to be honest, I had been tired of academ academia. Like it's really <laughs> difficult to work there. It's it's rigid. It's Byzantine in structure. It's to get anything done. My father said it best. He said, to make a change in a hospital, and particularly in academic, it's like, it's like um, turning a battleship around with an outboard motor. Mm. Like it's literally like- It's, it's politics. It's politics, man. Yeah, yeah let me- academia. Let me I can relate to what you're saying because I'm a political scientist by training. And what I notice, I can't really evaluate medical evidence and medical science that well. It's not really my wheelhouse at all. But what I was always skeptical of the lockdowns and many, and many other aspects of this, like suppressing alternative uh, therapies so aggressively that it actually raised suspicions about, you know, the motives behind the way this was suppressed. And one thing as a radical academic, uh, I've had to think about is the political economy of knowledge production. So in political mm. science, you're actually supposed to understand political economy. We're the discipline that is supposed to understand political economy and study that. But, but we have our own political economy of the discipline, and it results in people putting out bad political science in the U.S. because it really mm -hmm. obscures things that the power structure does not want highlighted. We you know, talk about the three branches of government, but then you look at something like the Kennedy assassination, and if you look at it honestly, you have to conclude, well, there's some other branch of the government that can veto democracy uh, yeah. by shooting the president in the street and saying, oh, it didn't happen, and that never happened. I mean, that is, and political science cannot even grapple with that. They, they have to pretend that their own paradigms are, are, are valid and they just keep going on talking about like looking at, you know, public opinion data and so on because there's a political economy and you're tied to an industry or to multiple industries, really, uh, healthcare and pharmaceuticals. Yep. And that has to be uh, understood. And yet it's like people are paid not to understand it. So you spoke about your own success uh, that you were having with patients in ICUs and, and ERs using ivermectin and other drugs. Uh, this cost you your career, or at least led to a career change, uh, but under pressure, you did not back down. And today, you're still saying what RFK Jr. has been saying for years. The pharmaceutical companies have bought their way into controlling the American healthcare system. So can you expand on that? 100%. Yeah, and so so it, it is interesting, that the, the analogy, analogy that you bring up in terms of political science and the biomedical sciences, because it's similar. But yeah, so so... I will answer that question by just very rapidly bringing myself up to date. So what happened after I left Wisconsin, I asked for a humanitarian leave to go back to New York because New York, they were dying for intensivists. They were all overworked, overwhelmed. So I did uh, five weeks of emergency volunteer work um, running my old ICU in lower Manhattan. Uh, that was an incredible, crazy time. Uh, and then I did locums work. So I started uh, traveling the country, working in different ICUs, um, 
in South Carolina, Milwaukee, central Wisconsin. I did that for the next couple of years, but my life really changed after I was asked to testify uh, for the second time. So I testified the first time in the Senate in May of 2020, talking about the critical need for corticosteroids. Uh, the University of Wisconsin was not happy because I was still a professor and introduced as a professor. And they started harassing me. Um, but I ended up resigning a few, my date of resignation was a few weeks later, so they couldn't touch me anymore. Then Ivermectin, I, I testified in December, and that's when everything changed. And, um, and that's also, Erin, to your question, that's when I started to get the lesson of my lifetime for like how things really worked. Um, I got to tell you, I was still quite naive uh, at that time. Um, like what was about to happen to me, I had no idea. Um, a lot of people uh, commend me on my courage and bravery. And I kind of, I don't laugh at that, but I'm, I, I say all the time, like, I had no idea what I was getting into. Like, <laughs> I actually thought people would be happy to hear my advice and guidance, and I'd be, if not celebrated, at least appreciated. Um, mm. But doctor. you know, you thought you were just doing doctor stuff, huh? No yeah. good deed goes unpunished, right? <laughs> I, I I was doing what I've done all my whole career is is that I'm a, I'm a medical educator. I mean, I, I've trained fellows, residents, students. I've won multiple teaching awards, and I like teaching. And so I thought I was just doing that maybe to the country or the world, but um, yeah. So, but to your question about pharmaceutical industry. So what I didn't know at the time is that I had planted myself like at the head of the front lines of a decades long war against repurposed drugs, right? So repurposed drugs are drugs that are off patent. They afford no ability to make obscene profits uh, off of them. And pharmaceutical industry has been attacking off repurposed off-patent drugs in any number of disease models. So psychiatry, cardiology, infectious disease, you name it. But here now we're in the big time, right? Because now we have a global pandemic, markets open up that are probably going to reach $100, $100 billion, you know, with vaccines and Paxlovid and Molnupiravir and monoclonal antibodies. And, and nobody wanted to hear about a cheap, widely available, super safe drug called ivermectin and how effective it was. And and my life started to get really hard. And basically what I learned right from that clip that I, you know, from that Mickey Willis movies, I didn't realize, to your question, Aaron, I didn't realize how strongly controlled every institution of the biomedical sciences from the societies, right? The American Infectious Disease Society of America, the AMA, to the journals, particularly the high impact journals. They're, they are completely captured. They will not publish mm. stuff that's inconvenient to that industry. Um, and and then the agencies forget it. I mean, Fauci biomedical industrial complex for 40 years. You don't do that if you're not a friend of pharma. And that's a Doc, I, I got a crazy story for you myself. My friend, one of my best friends, he was an atmospheric scientist. This is going back to the just the, the interconnection of it all and the economy of it all. Atmospheric scientist innocently wanted to do his doctoral thesis on um, what's the, uh, the, the weather program Harp? that they have based out of the University of Harp. Not thinking anything of it. Like he just was like, oh, this would be something really interesting to do it on. His uh, advisor told him, no, can't do it. Sorry. <laughs> and he was like, uh, why not? He said, because I want you to be able to get a job after you leave here. And if you, because my friend is like kind of this very much so going to tell the story as it is rather than as they want it to be. So like if you tell that story, you're not going to get a job. And that's, he's like, that doesn't make any sense. I thought this is about science. He's like, 
Well, it's also about people making money and the government doing whatever they need to do and everybody staying out the way. You know, they want people to, they want scientists, no matter what type of scientist you are, to contribute in a way that helps whether the government, the corporations, anything outside of that will get shut down. And, you know, one of the conversations that you had that got shut down, um, and actually, actually JFK discussed this as well, talking about the unique way that COVID seemed to be affecting uh, blacks, Latinos, um, my grandfather actually passed away after he never caught COVID. However, he got the vaccine. And obviously, a lot of people get the, the symptoms of COVID after getting the mRNA. And he died 36 hours later. Uh, they, wow. claimed it was, they, they claimed it was a, a heart attack. But he, he was on dialysis. Like I, I, There was no reason for him to take that vaccine. His job forced him into it. And then even though he kind of got out of that, the clinic kind of forced him into it. Yep. Um, and he died at the gas station for 36 hours later. They wouldn't let us do an autopsy. They wouldn't let us do anything. It took us two or three months to get his death certificate. It's horrible. Um, yeah. It, and it was crazy to me to think, like, they, they, they say, oh, if you say that, it's it makes you racist, right? It's like, yeah. hold on. I, I thought we were all fully aware, and you, a doctor, I'm sure can expand upon this. Like, I thought we were fully aware. Different people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different genders have different dispositions when it comes to how their bodies react to diseases and medication. I thought this was just basic logic. Basic. But how did you, like, how did it feel like when you were just doing your job as an expert, one of the foremost experts in the field, just making a, a mentioning a fact that otherwise, and in any other year, would have been received as good information, and instead it turns into now you're getting censored, now you're being called all types of names, that, uh, and then your credibility is being brought into question. Yeah, I, you know, Nico, I don't, you know, I, I did mention that the, the, the you know, uh, Hispanics and blacks uh, were disproportionately seemingly affected. And um, I, I remember that, you know, I was telling you guys, I was on the phone every day with the ICU directors in New York. And one of the directors was my mentor who trained me for, you know, uh, five years. And he, he had gotten COVID early. And that right when the surge started hitting those New York ICUs, and he, I remember when I called him the first day he went back to work, and he just said, there are so many ICU beds. And he says, we have them in a huge room. There's, you know, 20 ventilators on each side. All the x-rays look the same. And he said, you know what? You look, all the patients, they're just basically black and brown and just a little mm -hmm. overweight. And they weren't all old. You know, they were 40s yeah. and 50s. And, but Is that the vitamin D issue? Like, is yeah, it a vitamin certainly, D? Certainly plays, plays one of the contributing factors. And then obviously there are, there are others that could be genetics or, you know, Black people de definitely de generally have, um, unfortunately, they're predisposed to heart problems. This is just like a yeah. well-known thing within the community. Dietary usually is my conclusion. Yeah. But yeah, it, it would make but, sense that we were more susceptible to that type of disease. But yeah, and that's true. I would say though, Nico, I don't know that I was attacked for saying that so much as every the other more inconvenient stuff that I said, like you know the financially inconvenient stuff. But you know, basically, so my journey is, um, you know, and I and I detail this a lot in my book in in really detail. I mean, I, I really it's it's really autobiographical that book with a deep focus on what I learned with the the war on ivermectin, and I saw that war being waged. At the highest levels, I, I, I had very in-depth, in detailed knowledge of who and what and exactly how they pulled it off at the WHO, how they managed to not mm -hmm. recommend it, how they corrupted their own analysis. 
I know I saw how the high impact medical journals behaved. I had legions of colleagues around the world telling me that they were getting rejection letters on all of their ivermectin trials because they were positive, right? They're censoring negative report, you know, positive reports and only publishing negative reports. And you could just see it. And then the brazen misconduct of the what I call the big six, which are, you know, which all the newspapers and agencies will say are the largest and most rigorous trials. Maybe your listeners can't see my air quotes, but I'm using air quotes. On they can hear them. They can hear Right? <laughs> um, but so I, I got to see this whole, and it was so clear and so brazen. And like I mentioned, you know, it was it was one day in March of 21 when I read the Disinformation Playbook, which is an article that you can still find. If you go to Google and put in Disinformation Playbook, it's the first one that comes back. It's written by the Union for Concerned Scientists. And when I read that, suddenly the entire world made sense to me. Like it looks, it, it was like I got mm. the teacher's edition to what was happening in COVID in the medical sciences because it's five tactics. And I, and I was like, I, I was reading through the tactics. I was like, they did that twice yesterday. I saw, I have three examples of that. They're doing this right now and da, da, da. And then, you know, I'll finish. One of them is called the blitz. This is where they go after doctors that are producing inconvenient science. And one of the examples they mm. give, right, is, uh, Bennett Omalu, right, the physician who discovered chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which which impacted the NFL, right? It's, it's the disease that NFL retired NFL players CTE? were getting. Yeah, CTE. CTE yeah. Oh, and, okay. Ooh, that was and, you know, they made a, they made, Yeah, they they made a movie about that, right? And but that's yeah. a perfect example of a blitz. His life got really difficult very quickly, and all he was doing was trying to disseminate an insight that he had made into why these football players were getting ill and. And here, here we were trying to disseminate to the world that ivermectin was a really effective preventative and a therapeutic, and our lives were turned upside down. I mean, what happened to Paul Marek? He started, you know, they did something called what's called a sham peer review where mm -hmm. they just collect complaints, anonymous complaints. You don't know who said them, what they said them, but just the most disturbing things that he was being accused of. So his file folder, his employee folder grew real quick with complaints, and then they revoked his mm -hmm. clinical privilege. You know, and then uh, Umberto Maduri, one of the other founding members, he worked for the VA system for 40 years. And suddenly he was told to resign and that if he didn't resign, they were going to take his uh, pension. And the guy who told him that he had to resign was his former trainee, uh, who is now his boss. And then admitted to him that it was coming from Washington. So like what we were talking about before, like to stay employed, if you do stuff that hurts, you know, the real powers that run the system or the science that you're in, you're not going to stay employed. And then with me, what happened is my last job, I was an independent contractor running an ICU in the middle of Wisconsin. And the administration was telling my partners in the ICU, get rid of Corey. But here's the thing. My partners love me. I was te teaching them a lot about um, COVID. I was also a well-known um, national expert in point-of-care ultrasound. They had bought my textbook that I had written a few years prior. So they knew my work. They'd taken courses that I used to put on with the American. So they, they, they knew I was like a real deal, great ICU doctor. And they told the administration, if Corey goes, we go. And so administration backed down. But they kept putting gentle pressure. But then... They finally, one day, my buddy who ran the ICU called me up. This is now November of 21. And he just said, Pierre, we don't need you anymore. Mm. And I was like, what, what happened? And he basically recounted a complaint that was made against me, which was totally made up. I was like, Chris, that never happened. It was about me telling someone in the ER to not get vaccinated, which on paper could have happened. It just didn't happen. 
And so yeah. I knew it was made up. And he, but it's, a very, he it's the most specific complaint that definitely would have justified, and that at that time justified you being fired. Yeah, of course. But he said, you know, our practice, we're really into the vaccines. And they were. They were very pro-vaccine, my partners, uh, even in November of 21. And he said, we just can't have that. And 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 then he also admitted, as we said goodbye, he, he said, you know what, Pierre, this is a war and you're a casualty. That's what he told me. And that, that was well, the, and the other doctors see that. The other doctors around the world see that. It's uh, right. it's made me wonder all along. One last quick, quick question. Um, you know, you obviously you wrote the War on Ivermectin with author Jenna McCarthy, um, published by Sky Horse earlier this year. Yep. Did doctors all know? Because I mean, we know throughout time, off-label prescribing is just what's done. But then it seems like never before had we heard you can't use X medicine for Y sickness. Shouldn't that have sent a big red flag out? Like, did all our doctors know something fishy was going on and they just kept their mouths shut? Or, I mean, do you even, do you know? I, I think that question is so good. But it, it, here's what I have to, here's how I have to answer it. Once I left that system, Francis, I, I just, just, I don't have the knowledge. I mean, I definitely get some insights from a couple of colleagues of what it's like on the inside, but I actually think that most of them believe what they, I think the implicit faith and trust into large randomized controlled trials, health agencies, and journals is unshakable. And and mm -hmm. the doctors, they're being lied to and misled. I would say the vast majority are not aware of that. If you saw the arrogance around the way they pushed vaccines, when the data around the vaccines were so terrible, but they didn't know that. All they're reading are high-impact journals, which are telling you over and over, safe and effective, the media, safe and effective, the agency, safe and effective. So this propaganda apparatus that they're able to drown doctors in, I don't know what doctors believe, but I think they did believe it. But I like your point. Like, why so aggressive against one of the safest medicines? It's not fentanyl we're talking about. We're talking about ivermectin. It's literally <laughs> one of the safest ones. And they're behaving as if it's fentanyl. And I think it should have led the average doctor to say, gee, this is weird the way they're behaving around this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not surprised because it is just the political economy of, of knowledge and hegemony mm -hmm. in human civilizations. Just think about... Catholic cathedrals hundreds of years ago, and who would think that like could the, they couldn't be lying about you know the Earth being the center of the universe or whatever? Like everybody, <laughs> it, how who were you to argue with the Pope and all of these fabulous institutions they built? The humans just build monuments to their own to the higher to the higher circles of their own civilizations, and if yeah, political so scientists cannot understand the political economy of their own discipline and knowledge production then it seems like in medicine you would expect the same thing because they're not even really supposed to understand the political economy of knowledge. It just seems like this is a this exposes a flaw in human understanding and in human civilization, well, basically. It's uh well, Aaron, it's really you know, something. I, I, you're a political science major too, so I'm sure you know like a lot of people in every field, they know how to read data, okay? They know how to read statistics, and a lot of times they even know how to interpret what those statistics mean, but they actually have no idea how to determine whether or not those statistics in that journal or the data is legitimate. There's actually a whole class taught just for that so that you could determine legitimacy in any field, no matter what type of journal you're reading. And if you've never experienced that, then... Of course, you want to arrogantly push the 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 dogma, the religion, if you will. It's well, hard to know you're being lied to. Yep, it yep. is. It mm -hmm. is indeed. Dr. Pierre Corey, thank you so much for joining us. You can find Dr. Corey's writings and other work on 
FLCC's website, covidcriticalcare.com and drpierrecorey.com, as well as on his substack, Pierre Corey's Medical Musings. I also want to encourage you to like, subscribe, and share this podcast if you've enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe to the Kennedy Beacon on Substack. There you'll find news about Kennedy's presidential campaign, as well as analysis of how the media is covering it and stories about the issues that have prompted him to run. Join us next week for another episode of the Kennedy Beacon podcast.